if you have been with us, I want you to know that when we come to this sixth commandment, there's a sense where we do finally take a turn. Because as I've noted the last few weeks, as we've looked at each of the five commandments prior here, in fact, those commandments have to do with our duty toward God, our, our worship of God, our reverence for God, our thoughts about God. Even when we are told to honor our parents, the reality is we do that out of respect for God. They stand in the place of God in our lives. But here, as we begin to tackle these commandments from the perspective of our duty to one another, the next five commandments all have to do with how we relate to one another. And even yet, in this moment, as we turn to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, we cannot escape the shadow of God. The sixth commandment is terse and to the point without commentary. Don't murder. In Hebrew, that's just two words, all that, all that uh, the Hebrew says. You'd think that the sermon would be short just as a result, but, but don't count on it, you know, that kind of a thing. But it turns out that this is important because we are dealing with people who are created in the image of God. To destroy another person is to attempt to diminish God's image. So our love for people necessarily springs from our love of God. Now you, you deal with a culture where you don't love God, you're in trouble because suddenly you don't care about other people. But we care about people because we love God. So we've gone from our creator to our parents and the reality is these last five words, these last five commandments have to do with how we treat our siblings. How many of you grew up in a household with some siblings? Most of us, most of us. I had two younger sisters, and, and thinking about that, I could really guess why this commandment is needed. <laughs> there, there used to be a, a show on television that Mary and I, would, when we were young parents, uh, actually enjoyed. It was called Super Nanny. Do you, any of you recall? Super Nanny. It was a, a part of reality TV phenomena of the early 2000s, and parents across the nation tuned in to see Joe Frost, the English Mary, Mary Poppins, show up to a household, and, and she'd show up in that London executive sedan, and she began to sort out the mayhem that was going on in those homes. And you had kids, remember? You had kids who were out of control. They were, uh, they were disobedient out to their parents. It was almost terrifying to watch these brothers and sisters fighting with each other, parents who were ready to pull their hair out and just at wit's end. But this is my guilty confession. Mary and I love the show. Because <laughs> when we would tune in, we'd always kind of sort of look at each other. And you have to understand this. It wasn't because we found this show especially helpful with great parenting tips. I don't ever, in fact, remember thinking, Mary, we ought to try that tomorrow with our kids. Because, you know, Joe always had some kind of uh, psychological technique to get the kids to comply. That, that wasn't it. No, this is why we watched it. We watched it for validation. You know, when, when you watched that show and you saw how much of a mess of things these other parents had made in their homes and their children, you couldn't help but tell yourself, man, we're not that bad. 
I, I, I'm not that messed up as a mom or as a dad. You, you might lose your temper. Yeah, we, we you know, sometimes come home to a, a house that's a disaster. But Super Nanny proved that there were a whole lot of parents who were much more inept than we were. So we loved the show. We didn't turn off the TV thinking, well, tomorrow we'll try that. No, we were thinking, well, at least we've never done that. I think I can, uh, I think that kind of relates to what we're talking about here when it comes to this commandment. Well, you know, I, I may have done some things wrong. I might have stolen something. I might have told a lie. I may have taken the name of the Lord in vain. But at least I'm not a murderer. The Ten Commandments, one of the, the graces of the Ten Commandments is that they are designed to convict us but this seems like a little bit of a reprieve right in the middle of a courtroom trial, a moment when we, we can just take a breath and say, well, at least I've never done that. What could be more straightforward than being a non-murderer, right? However, I, I want to go a little bit deeper briefly this morning. And I want you to understand that the reality is this commandment is very much a part of the human story. As soon as our first parents produced a pair of siblings, things began to show themselves to be very wrong. You'll remember, Adam and Eve, they sinned. They were cast out from the Garden of Eden, clinging to the promise that one would come who would deliver them. The couple, when they were cast out of the garden, were experiencing the curse of sin, but they experienced also a promise from God. You remember that God had said within their seed, one would come that would break the head of the serpent and sin itself. And so when Eve gives birth to Cain, the Bible says she rejoices. She has gotten a man with the help of the Lord, she says. I was fascinated when I read by Jim Boyce, an author. He said, notice that her reaction, in fact, points back to that promise from God. Eve is thinking, here he is. This is the one. This is the deliverer. Now, uh, you know, and I know it would be thousands of years before Messiah would come. But Eve didn't know that. And of course, the irony is, as we learn the story of Cain, is we find out that sin is so deep and so dark. Cain is not the Messiah. He's a murderer. The firstborn of Adam, instead of delivering humanity, will take the life of a human being, the life of his own brother, made in the image of God. Of course, you remember the story. Abel, his younger brother, offers a sacrifice of worship to God, and the Bible says that it was pleasing to God. Cain offers a sacrifice, but there was something, and we could debate about what it was, but it did not show itself to be favorable to God, and Cain is enraged. God warns him, Cain, why are you so furious? Why is your face so da downcast? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. 
But of course, we know the story. Cain does not heed the warning. He's not able to master the temptation. And this is what we see. He cannot strike God down. So he strikes down the one who resembles him. He lures Abel into a field and he kills him. Murder. And later when God comes and says to Cain, inquiring about his brother Abel, Cain's response is, am I my brother's keeper? And that's a question that we must all ask and answer. And the Bible is clear, yes, I am. But again, why is this commandment important to you and to me? I think it's important because the story of Cain didn't, is this. He didn't set out to plot his brother's murder. It began with a far more acceptable, subtle sin. It began with just being angry. Now this is where it gets a little tricky and this is where we need to think together. Is anger a sin? Well, Anger is a negative emotion. It's a negative emotion like fear or, or sorrow. An emotion is a natural response to a circumstance. It's something that just comes out of you. It, it comes as a response when we don't get something we want or, or we don't have our way or, or our will is somehow violated. That's when we become angry. And yet... Anger itself is not a sin. For instance, in Paul in Ephesians writes, be angry and do not sin. So they are distinct. They are two different things. There are times when maybe we should be angry. We look at the life of Jesus, and Jesus got angry with the Pharisees. Jesus got angry with Peter. But our problem is this, that sometimes we can let anger progress and it becomes something else, and it becomes sinful. I think this, that Cain's problem was not that he was merely angry, but his problem was anger nursed. Anger festered. Anger indulged. He liked being angry. In the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember that Jesus talks about murder, and Jesus, in fact, warns us of harboring anger. And you'll remember that there's only one difference, or one letter difference between the word anger and danger. And Jesus moves us toward an understanding of this emotion that we need to understand and respect that gives us an expanse of obedience toward this command. He preached. This is what Jesus said. He said, you've heard it said that it was to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in fact in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus is serious here. Jesus calls us a step further. He says, you've got to look at your heart. You've got to look at your thoughts. You've got to look at your motives. 
You can obey the letter of this law and still break the spirit of the law. Just as God had warned Cain that his anger was leading to somewhere brutal, Jesus warns us this morning. And he does so by describing speech patterns that result from anger indulged. So he goes and he tells us that exclamation, raka, you fool, in Hebrew, that, that's the word raka. It is, it is the equivalent of, of the worst language you can think of in our language, the, the kind that always gets the bleeps. And how often do we have to use those bleeps today? It is, it is language of extreme contempt. So our anger progresses from responding to a hurt to questioning a person's character with an insult to beginning to question the worth of that person altogether. And once contempt has been born, Jesus says it yields entirely vicious results. The Bible, of course, says that a fool says in his heart that there is no God. And so in that day, to say a person was a fool was to declare that they didn't know God, that they didn't have God, that they were destined toward hell. It would be like us saying today, go to hell. That, 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 that means that not only do you wish that they were dead, but that you would wish that they were dead eternally. And Jesus turns that around and he says, you get angry with your brother or your sister, you're the one who is in danger of the fires of hell yourself. You understand what he's saying? And I look at our culture today, and I see this all around us. Politicians have figured out that contempt and anger can feed their coffers for funds and votes. And Christians go along with it, sadly. Civility traded in for outrage becomes this carnival of contempt. The Atlantic Magazine had an article sometime back calling much of daytime TV merchant anger, anger merchants, as they talked about the Jerry Springers of the world, where, you know, and this is, this is daytime TV. Erroring brawls from people getting paid to look like fools and millions are delighted. Contempt directed at image bearers of God. And it breeds violence, Jesus says. We pretend that violence is a result of guns, when the real issue, of course, is the sin that's right here. And listen, friends, contempt may win followers and likes on Facebook and Twitter, but it is not the way of the Christian. It is a masquerade of self-righteousness, but in the end, it always has a victim. And ironically, the victim is me. I just want to say something here. Listen, if you come to this place and you're harboring a resentment, if you're kind of just finding your... And you know, the hurt was real. The hurt was legitimate, and the anger was legitimate. But if you are indulging in that, you're enjoying the anger, you are 
harboring it in your soul. I'm going to tell you, God wants to heal you of that today because that bitterness will destroy you much more so than it will hurt the other person. It is in your best interest that you release that anger to God because in the end, God says, I will make all things right someday. And I know that there are people in our congregation who have gone through abuse and you're angry. And I understand that. But God, help me. Help me to forgive. Help me to move on. Help me to live. Am I my brother's keeper? Jesus says, yes, I am. And for your sakes, yes, you are. But remember this too. Jesus was the object of anger and contempt. Jesus came to this earth the very image of God. And he was denigrated and devalued and stripped of any dignity. Out of anger, the Pharisees had him arrested. Out of anger, the Romans rejoiced in beating him and whipping him and crucifying him on the cross. It was his broken flesh and spilled blood poured down the cross. Why? Because of anger. Cain, the murderer, was not the Messiah. But Jesus Christ, the murdered, was the Messiah indeed. The very image of the invisible God, and we killed him. And that's what I want you to see this morning. That's what I want you to contemplate when we come to this commandment and we think, well, at least I've never done that. Peter had been arrested. This is shortly when the church had just experienced Pentecost. He's been preaching boldly. He's been arrested. He's before the Sanhedrin. And boldly, he says to the Jews, he says this in Acts chapter 5, he says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, but note this, listen to this, hear this this morning, who you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. Who you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. Friend, I want you to understand, it was my sin it was your sin that put him on the cross. You shall not murder. And all of us have broken that command. And Jesus says today, I'll forgive you. In fact, I'll do one more. Not only did I die for you, but I live for you. And the life I gave up, I give to you. And he rose again, because he didn't stay dead. His life was extinguished so he could preserve your life. And so Jesus Christ gives us life. That's what we celebrated today in baptism. In him was life, John says, and he was the light of all humanity. So friends, it seems to me, you know, if we are really found in Christ, if we are found in him, we must not only not be an instrument of death, but in fact, 
yeah, we are not murderers, but we must give life to. There ought to be something about us so winsome and joyful and encouraging that when other people hear our words, they're blessed. We give them life. You know, our words matter. Blessing or curse. What do people hear from you? As Christians, we ought to protect life from the womb to the tomb. We love life because we've experienced life. As we close this morning, as I think about these sweet testimonies that we've heard, I want to ask you this simple question. Do you know the life that Jesus offers? Is it yours? Yes, we've all broken this command, do not murder. But Jesus offers us his forgiveness. And this morning, once again, through the mystery of grace, he says, I'll give you life if you decide to follow me. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that in this place we have seen and heard the testimony and word of grace, the gospel message. None of us deserve heaven. All of us, Lord, are afraid. But in you, Lord, we find a new life, a new boldness, a new opportunity to, to love others. And Lord, yes, there are all kinds of reasons we may find that we have to be angry. But there is one reason that trumps it all. We rejoice that Jesus Christ is alive. And so, Lord, we love life today, and we confess our love for you. I just pray for that one person here who maybe has not said yes to the gift of your salvation. I pray, Lord, that you will stir in them right now a desire to say yes, to put their faith in you, and that, Lord, they would follow you. They would grow hungry for your word. They would grow hungry for the fellowship of your people. They would be the next one to be baptized so that, Lord, we can see the, the fruit of your spirit working in our church. Lord, we are a church that needs life, and that life only comes from you. Thank you for your love for us. I pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.